For August 14th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 476. And I was there, and I was there, and I was there. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out, watching the movies we love, listening to the music, reading the books or comics, playing the games, and we're really never happier than when we gather together to discuss them afterwards. I'm Matt Rather, and I am gathered here today with Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hello, Matthew. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good and very excited about our uh, topic for today, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, mm-hmm. This was something that you suggested, and I'll let you tell me why in a second, but I, I just want to say that I like this sort of practice that we've stumbled onto um, for no particular reason, just by trying things out, of from time to time uh, doing a classic work. And a couple months ago, we watched and discussed E.T., which was such a rich and satisfying Experience both the watching and the discussing, and uh, I'm excited to do uh, the same for both the uh, 1939, I want to say, musical adaptation, and for L. Frank Baum's uh, 1900 children's book. Um, how did you come to this? Was your idea? So, how did you come to see The Wizard of Oz and and want to talk about it on the show? Well, in the same way that it's been interesting and fun for us to discover the opportunity to talk about movies like this, I think small independent movie theaters yeah. and movie theater groups have been also finding that it's fun to hold screenings of things like this increasingly. I think the Sunshine Cinema in the Lower East Side of New York is unfortunately closing, which is a place I used to go to years ago that would do things like Midnight Movie of Superman or Indiana Jones right in the summer, which was awesome. Sure. And uh, – the, my local movie theater it held a screening of The Wizard of Oz uh, just recently that I went to go see. And I saw Casablanca before that, and they're going to do some more. I think they're doing Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's just, it's just a cool way to take advantage of these spaces and, and uh, to do something with these sorts of spaces other than the mainstream, seemingly commodified, latest release movie experience. Sure. I mean, a it's a differentiator. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. It's something that has sort of made it into the mainstream. Like you can find this at various levels of, of, uh, what shall I say of cultural currency, right? Uh, the big, um, the big one in Los Angeles is called, uh, Cinespia. I think I'm saying that right. And it's, uh, it's an outdoor film, repertory films shown in the Hollywood forever cemetery on the huge lawn, uh, that they have there. Um, shown up against a, a giant screen, and it's become re- it's really a scene. It's a place to Instagram and be Instagrammed um, to do this. But these, you know, and then I've seen them also at like AMC multiplexes, where sometimes they will do, or uh, here in LA, the ArcLight uh, does occasional like repertory screenings in addition to the to the things. And I think they're only open to their, you know, super popcorn members or something like that. Uh, and and but you know there have been neighborhood movie theaters doing this crap forever you know, forever and ever. And it's, it's, it's nice, you know, in the same way that we sort of dust off the classics in theater from time to time and do, you know, every so often you decide, Hey, let's do Julius Caesar in the park this summer. 
six, <laughs> seven, eight. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, that got dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, look, the wizard does have uh, quite an astonishing haircut. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that's I mean, so well, then let me start with this. Like, you watched the film first and then went back to the to the novel and read it, right? Yes, in the same night, I watched the film. <laughs> so you really binged. You you did an Oz binge watch or binge binge read or something like that. Yeah. Um, what were your impressions going back to the film? Because I was struck very strongly uh, by watching it, um, and I wonder if you had the same reaction that I did. I had a lot of strong reactions to the film, especially on the big screen because I've seen it on TV a bunch of times. The detail. That's apparent in the way that it's all crafted. Yeah. Stands out a lot more when the image is a lot bigger. And the detail is, especially for a movie in the 1930s, well, first of all, the movie almost feels like it's from 1960. It does not feel like it's from the late 1930s. And the level of detail is both profound and also a little bit off from what you would expect because – Obviously, there haven't been a lot of movies like this made up until this point. Yeah. So things like the later hosen and the greased sideburns of the munchkins and sure. all of the colors, right? All that stuff. Uh, the way that the whole world is constructed in, in – uh, and the things in the background that don't have any bearing on the story, like the random birds that show up. You know, There's a giant crane at one point that shows up in a background shot. And you don't know why it's there and it's never explained. The tree is, is super intense, the tree that can speak – uh, the the way that it's all realized and uh, I guess the way that it's performed both in it's almost it's almost as if the set design and costume design are themselves an act of performance is yeah. just what it felt like to me. Uh, what was your reaction? It was I mean, it was the same thing. I like even just the Kansas before just taking the, the very first part of the first act. Right. Like uh, I feel like there was more style in that 20 minutes than um than in the entirety of some CGI blockbusters that we've watched, uh, we've watched this summer. The um, it's it's square. The like the proper shape of that of the film is like a four by three. It's not quite, but it's it's about that, um, or maybe it is one through three. Uh, it's called Academy Ratio, and it's uh, uh, it, it was the sort of original format of theatrical exhibi- exhibition for those movies before uh, in order to compete with television movies got uh, much wider and sort of the normal wide movies and then widescreen processes like cinemascope uh, and things like this that stretch the the frame out almost to three times the uh, three times the width of its height um, but it's it's not it's so it's very interesting pictorially right because there's a lot of vertical space and you don't you don't see that in um you don't see that in in widescreen movies anymore and there's there's something to be said for like the beautiful uh kind of widescreen it's sort of sort of coincided with a lot of beautiful westerns where the the line of the horizon right like stretched from side to side on the screen but this um there's there's some shots early on uh, the the uh, what the sort of taller picture allows you to do is like create four middle and background um, in a different way. 
way, right? Like there's there's a scene when Dorothy is uh, before the cyclone when she's going down to the uh, to the kind of the traveling circus wagon to eat sausages, or uh, when she's crossing a bridge or something like that. And there's more. There's just more richness in the frame because you can see like below the bridge or kind of down the hill the sky and the kind of the middle ground that she's she's traversing through. I don't know. I mean, it's it's this is one example of the thing, but it just I, moment to moment, I was so struck by the richness and the 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 sort of careful the the careful framing of all of these things. Yeah, it stands out a lot. The matte painting stands out a lot. Oh yeah. And so there's a scene early on where she's running up the road. I think it's after Toto or something like that. I'm not quite sure. And she's running up the road. And you know if she keeps running, she's going to hit the big matte painting yep. in the back of the, of the studio yeah. or the back of the lot wherever when she's, they are. One of those, one of those is, is the um... – one of those is that when she sets off on the yellow brick road, she gets perilously close to a flat wall with with a painting on it when she's setting off along the yellow brick road and the munchkins are waving goodbye to her. But you're thinking of even earlier in Kansas, right? Yeah. I mean, there's moments throughout where she gets really – there's a moment where she runs back and then there's a moment where she, from there she cuts down a road and she runs sideways. And it's really clear that those two spaces don't exist, in fact, next to each other but were the same space reconfigured. With everything moved around so that she could go the other way or something along those lines, right? That uh, that that uh, every single part of the Kansas was constructed somewhere. Maybe it is different lots that they all set up next to each other, but it feels like each place is a stage that she walks onto. Yeah, and and I remembered in particular one of the lions and tigers and bears scene later on where they're coming down. They come down the yellow brick road, sort of down from the upper left hand corner of the frame down to the right i believe or and and they're coming through the trees and you, yeah. there's these vertical trees and you can see them through the trees it really made me think of this both the sense of the confinement in each of the stagings of each of the scenes that there are walls that they're going to but that also the boldness of the players within this confinement and this the way that their movement is is very purposeful and even though you know that they're surrounded by people and objects, which I know would often be the case in movies, but feels even more the case in this movie for some reason. And yeah, then just the vertical space of them slicing down through those fragments of light that come down, uh, up and down through, through the, through the frame is really impressive. Yeah. It's so, I, I mean, it's so good. And I think you're right. And these are like Burt Lahrer, you know, and, and, uh, I guess um, Judy Garland is too young to be anything in particular yet. Right. She's, she's kind of still in the oven. Uh, a good singer. Oh yeah. Really oh, and and just incredibly charismatic. Like you sit. Like I don't. I don't know. Do they just not? Is this style just not? I think that kids aren't raised like this anymore. And I, you know, she was sort of raised to be a performer. But the the um, just the kind of open heartedness, just the kind of the the uh, wide the wideness of her expression and this this sort of sense of all encompassing goodness uh, that she brings in that first thing. Like you love by the end of you know you, you have you have a, a heart as cold as the Wicked Witch of the West if you uh, if you don't love her by the end of Somewhere Over the Rainbow and just when she talks to Toto and it's like oh Toto I there must be a place 
place like that. And there's none of this. It's become fashionable to kind of ironize, right? To, to sort of, um, to, as one is, is saying it, saying something, uh, sincere to performatively highlight the ridiculousness, right? Of the thing, of the thing that, that one is saying. And I think like when you talk about boldness, uh, another, uh, another word for it is maybe sincerity. And another word is maybe commitment and the sort of, mm-hmm. this is the, the sincere commitment to the, uh, to the performances just, just, uh, you know, I don't know, blows me, um, blows me away. The, uh, and, and a, a certain sense of economy, right? Like the first act is, is dispensed with in 20 minutes. We're on our way. We're on our way after 20 minutes. Like it's, you know, it's time to start meeting, uh, meeting, um, scarecrows and, and tin men and, uh, you know, and so on and so on. Um, and you don't, you know, I don't know. It does, it does, uh, it does so much with, um, it does so much with relatively little material, uh, and creates a lot of visual panache without, uh, without a lot of ruckus, without a lot of barrage and ruckus that, that are, you know, it's not, it's hard. I mean, I, I you know, I don't mean to crap on the, the films of today, many of which are very good, but the, the, uh, the prevailing style is one of barrage and ruckus. And the, the, the lack of that, the sort of clarity of vision is something that I find really affecting when I watch this. And yet at the same time, it feels like the performative, uh, supersedent to this is drag queen show. Right? <laughs> it's just the the way that all the characters are, and and this is as good a time well, as any. To, a little bit like, Vaud- vaudeville. Well, vaudeville. Well, so that's that's interesting. I felt to me it felt very, it felt very performed and camp. And I guess vaudeville is related to this. And of course, I never saw vaudeville live on stage. I've seen none of, none of us. None of us. Yeah, none of us has. <laughs> And the idea that vaude- vaudeville is going to have this kind of thing. So it, it's as good a time as any to connect the book to the movie, sure. which I don't think it's not really a case of, oh, this is faithful or this isn't faithful because who cares? But it's more like reading the book gave me a lot of insight into what was happening in the movie it, that that sort of was a necessary factor in telling the story and what was not a necessary factor and what sort of panache and artistry. It's it's sort of like because you don't know what the baseline for being a scarecrow on film is if you have you know other than the Wizard of Oz, and I mean of course I've seen Return to Oz which has a very different vision of what it's like to be a scarecrow on film, and I've seen Batman Begins which has yet another vision of what it's like to be a scarecrow on film. But the performative, the panache, the panache and showmanship which feels related to an element of gender camp where. Dorothy is both being infantilized and speaking with an older woman's voice, right? Which, of course, is like, well, is that really an older woman's voice or is that just Judy Garland's voice, which everyone has been imitating, including Liza Minnelli, right? Which can't help it. She definitely <laughs> sounds like Liza Minnelli, but it's the other way around. It's it's astonishing. I had that I had that exact reaction while I was watching. And for those who aren't familiar, Liza Minnelli is Judy Garland's daughter, right? Yeah. And, and so, and, and it's I don't know how much. I don't know much about what Liza Minnelli is like off stage. <laughs> I don't think that's that. I feel like that's not a uncommon sentiment about her. And that is she ever off stage? Is Liza Minnelli ever not performing? And I so I don't know what her voice sounds like when she's just having a conversation. I've never seen her on a talk show not hamming it up. 
And so is, is this just Judy Garland's and Liza Minnelli's voice or are they putting on a show? Well, I think it's also I, well, in the same way, you know, in this in the same way that now there would there are some pervasive vocal tics that characterize the speech of present day. Right. Uh, like there are, there are just, there's a vocal style, right? Like eras have v- vocal styles. And I think you're right that it's hammed up a little bit because the mode of performance, you know, is, is theatrical and sort of very, very presentational. Like these guys are, are, you know, vaudeville, vaudeville comedians, right? And there's vaudeville and there's burlesque, which is the kind of the, the adults only and where the campier, the boundaries are pushed and some of the campier elements and, and, Things like this, but yeah, definitely the sort of definitely the sort of gender performance of the scarecrow uh, and the Tin Man, the lion, yeah, and the lion. You know <laughs> what? Yeah, absolutely. If uh, I were the king of the forest, <laughs> put him up, put up your dukes, put him up. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, uh, but I I wonder if it just scans. I, you know, I wonder if it just scans a little queer to us. Um, you know, I mean that both in the literal and the the specialized sense, uh, where where it might have had a different effect on a on a contemporary audience. Um, I'm not, uh, I, you know, I'm not totally but sure. So, so to connect it back to this, the book, the book has none of that, zero. Oh yeah, there is there is no there's virtually no characterization in the book everything is relayed very much through the third person narrator and even the dialogue is feels more like this person said this and this person said this and then this person did this and you get the sense that all of the characters are if anything variations of the storyteller right that this is sort of a story that you're telling to children and they're only going to be different characters insofar as much as the person reading the story decides to do like slightly different voices but everything is spoken in a very matter of fact and prosaic way so the lion would would not be like put him up, put him up. It would be like the lion put up its fists and wanted to fight with the other thing, but then they didn't do it. Right, something along those lines. Yeah, uh, and 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 the it's it's a it's a powerful effect. Dorothy has none of the stargazing quality, none of the desire to get away from home. Uh, she's mostly she feels like a Roald Dahl character in that she's a suffering child who has to deal with yet more suffering of a supernatural nature and is so jaded by what she's been through in her suffering that she's not wowed by the things that she encounters in the big wide world as much as you might expect. So, uh, yeah, but but the Tin Woodsman in particular, Tin Woodsman is probably the character that is the most different between the book and the movie in that the movie Tin Woodsman is this vaudeville comedian, maybe a little bit burlesque. Maybe he just went to boarding school, smart kind of guy. <laughs> and, and the Tin Woodsman in the book is a full-on grim nightmare, you know, G-R-I-M-M, in that he is a woodsman who is in love with a woman and was given a cursed axe head that he then chopped off his leg and he did a whole ship of Theseus thing where he re- got all of his body parts <laughs> that he successively chopped off with the cursed axe head replaced by pieces of tin until he chopped his head off and then carved his heart out with this cursed axe, which made him incapable of love, I suppose. Although that's not 
shown to be a meaningful consequence on his emotional. No, life. I mean, well, I mean, the the thing in the book, and it's highlighted a lot more in the book than than it is in the film, is that they each have the thing that they I, they each have in spades the thing that yeah. they uh, that they are purporting to quest after, right? And they have it immediately in the movie. It's sort of like oh, they find out a little bit later, but like in the book, it's like right away you find out. There's a very clear example where they tell you that they have they already have what yeah, they're looking the, for. Yeah, the scarecrow's already figuring things out the tin man is all is already you know uh uh empathizing with each little each little creature like he doesn't want to step on any bugs on the the yellow brick road and the cowardly lion is is already you know sort of being the private security uh <laughs> you know for this uh for this party going going through working as as sort of uh working as bodyguards i mean they form you know this isn't my like one stock uh this isn't my one stock observation that I have about everything. It's just a pattern that a lot of stories fall into, but they form a kind of allegorical model of a single person, right? With, with sort of thought, emotion and embodiment. Um, you know, the lion, the lion being the body, the, the scarecrow, the brain and the, the, the tin man, the heart, they, they sort of are, you know, together, they form one, uh, person as a counterpart to Dorothy. Which associates them with, I guess, what, late medieval and early modern religious allegory? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is that, right? A little yeah. bit. If this were, if this were uh, Spencer, right, you know, the, 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 the scarecrow would always be called the wise scarecrow, you know, yeah. who, <laughs> who uh, you know, uh, who lacketh the brain, B-R-A-I-N-E, you know, <laughs> Or, yeah, or like every man where it's like, hi, I'm good deeds. Right. I'm going to stick with you, that kind of thing. And it's like, oh, OK, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. And the uh, and and um, Dorothy is she's just so sad. She's much poorer in the books. And she like they only have one room and she sleeps in the corner. Right. And and this idea of where they're going to sleep. Lodging is a bigger problem in the book. And, where, where the, yeah, and hospitality. Yeah, the yeah. Expe- the expectation of hospitality that like if you go, you can more or less just walk up to someone's house and expect to be expect to be taken in for the night and given a meal, right? The the uh, the sort of expectations point to a society that's very different from you know uh, from our contemporary sort of middle class expectations of uh, uh, of you know what. I don't know what modern life is like, right? Right. So if you've seen Return to Oz, have you seen Return to Oz? I, I think I was scared by it as a child and yeah. didn't didn't uh, make it past someone hitting the desert and turning into sand. Yeah, it's a, it's a very messed up. It's a 1985 movie uh, starring uh, Feruza Balk, She of Charmed, right? And uh, and it's it's supposedly I think the selling point was that it was more faithful to the books than the original movie was. Uh, so to, for that as a basis of comparison, it's also full of weird puppet work that's very well done, but disturbing to children almost universally. And if you just even look at a picture of what the scarecrow looks like, it's twisted and strange. Yeah, and also, isn't isn't like Dorothy institutionalized, like for yes. you know, a mental like uh, for delusions, you know, for persistent yeah. like delusions about this magical land of Oz, which is I guess a whole other angle. So 
I guess two things that I wanted to say here. One is, I guess, to start out with, The Wizard of Oz has this framing device that informs a lot of what happens and how you interpret a lot of what happens over the course of the story, which is that this is Dorothy's subconscious dealing with the people that she's encountered in her life and her feelings, presumably as she's growing up, about the kind of person that she wants to be or the kind of people that she wants to be with and what she thinks is good and what she thinks is bad, how she's kind of adjudicating this idea of good and bad that she's developing independently of her aunt and uncle. And they're kind of she's they're not comfortable with her being an independent agent right because she has a feeling about what should happen to toto after toto supposedly bites the woman's leg and her she gets upset that her feeling isn't being respected and then she has this big dream after this head injury during the storm where all of the things that are in her life manifest at these as these subconscious projections and it ends up being about the foolishness of adults and how adults don't have a good idea of what's actually happening to them. And Dorothy gets to be this sort of authority over, over herself, which is great. The book has none of this. The book doesn't have the meta-narrative of Dorothy uh, dreaming any of this. It's just it's just a place that's over the desert. And they go over the de- – it's not over the rainbow. It's over the desert, which is a pretty big frickin' difference in terms of the, the tone. Uh, and Return to Oz also has the framing device, except it, oh, it's Dorothy undergoing electroshock treatment during a storm. And that's messed up. But the the way to sort of the other thing to follow off from that on is if you wanted to do a sequel to The Wizard of Oz or you wanted to follow on to The Wizard of Oz in some way and further this cultural thing that's been around for, you know, 120 years at this point, 117 years. If you wanted to be part of this, I think it's easy to conflate the subject matter and the story of The Wizard of Oz with the performative style of the 1939 movie and the two are not necessarily linked at all yeah <laughs> yeah and and i think that there's not really anything baked into the heart of what it is to be the scare scarecrow the tin man the cowardly lion that ne- necessitates that you be smarmy vaudeville comedians it's just not that kind of story in a lot of the other interpretations no they're they're extraordinarily i mean they're extraordinarily straightforward and it's um you know it's it's sort of a. uh it's episodic, right? Like it, the there's a there's a sense in which there is not exactly like a rising and falling action, you know, it, that it's just kind of one one incident after after another. I guess with the largest, it, you know, it's like a treasure hunt, right? Unless you know, unless you, uh, my mother always used to like on Easter, you know, it's never like there's Easter baskets. He always had to work for it, you know. So it's like uh, there's a post-it note that said you know, I don't know, look under the bed where you'd find another post-it note. And unless you have like, you know, treasure hunts designed by, I don't know, a crew of uh, Hollywood storytellers or something like that, in in a treasure hunt, you're just going from point to point, right? Uh, And there isn't necessarily like a rising tension uh, in in a treasure hunt. And that's a little bit like what the... the, um, the experience of the novel uh, is like there are overarching um, concerns, uh, but everyone but Dorothy is wrapped up by, you know, 70, 75 percent of the way into the novel. And you have to, you know, and it's just her who's not um, it's just her who's not home. So it's a, a, I don't know. It's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a strange thing. Now there's a, there's a, a prefatory, um, 
statement, like a little introduction. Uh, and it's actually, it's very short. I can read it in its, in its entirety without taking too much time by, uh, L Frank Baum, uh, written in, in 1900. Um, it says, folklore, legends, myths, and fairy tales have followed childhood throughout the ages. For every healthy youngster has a wholesome and instinctive love for stories fantastic, marvelous, and manifestly unreal. The winged fairies of, I should say winged, the winged fairies of Grimm and Anderson have brought more happiness to childish hearts than all other human creations. Uh, Yet the old-time fairy tale, having served for generations, may now be classed as historical in children's in the children's library. For the time has become uh, the time has come for a series of newer wonder tales in which the stereotyped genie, dwarf, and fairy are eliminated, together with all the horrible and blood-curdling incidents devised by their authors to point uh, a fearsome moral to each tale. Modern education includes morality, therefore the modern child seeks only entertainment in its wonder tales and gladly dispenses with all disagreeable incident. Having this thought in mind, the story of the wonderful Wizard of Oz was written solely to please children of today. It aspires to being a modernized fairy tale in which the wonderment and joy are retained and the heartaches and nightmares are left out. Then so, there's the part where yeah. the Tin Man beheads forty wolves in a row. <laughs> and then Darth, <laughs> Dorothy, yeah, Dorothy wakes up and there's a pile of wolves. So, <laughs> and then the next, <laughs> and the Tin Man says, "Yo, dog, I heard you like wolves, so I got some wolves on your wolves." And then the next night they're attacked by forty crows or ravens, and the Scarecrow grabs each of them individually and snaps their necks. So I guess part of the lesson is that that which was considered in the year 1900 to be just merely delight and and not, in fact, a blood-curdling terror, perhaps it has changed over time. But that is really interesting to hear because – so I, I've been talking to a couple people this week about having seen The Wizard of Oz again, having read the book again. And a lot of people have confronted me with the common conception that the story is based specifically off of the populist politics of the gold and silver standard controversies of the 1890s. And you've probably heard this too, right, Matt? Uh, yes, uh, but but refresh me. Refresh so the, everyone. Uh, yeah, so there was a controversy in the late 19th century w- between uh, agricultural workers and farmers and people owned farms, whatever, uh, sold commodities, and then people who were in the, the sort of uh, the buying and selling of these things on the higher levels, the corporations, the large business interests. And one of the I- interests was involving credit and uh, interest rates and inflation. And a big one a big idea here was that the money was the money was based on gold, the dollar was based on gold. This meant that the value of the dollar was sustained very high and there was a credit cycle where farmers would have to borrow and they still have to do this, right? You have to borrow money to plant your crops and and do your farm work and then you sell your crops and you make the money back. And there was this uh, desire and this political movement to shift the dollar from being a gold standard currency to being a silver standard currency with the idea that it might devalue the currency somewhat and ease the credit cycle, right? Because inflation is good for debtors and bad for creditors. Because when inflation goes up, if you owe a fixed amount of money, that money is worth less and it's easier to pay off. And and this is there was a big election. It was there's like 1892, 1896. This was an issue. Uh, William Jennings Bryant is a figure who is involved in it uh, and is a major politician who ran for president unsuccessfully a couple times. And so there's a bunch of different things. Oh, then the populist platform had other 
other planks that it was concerned with, a lot of them regarding credit cycles, how crops were paid for. The the modern day um, sort of uh, uh, farm subsidy system didn't exist, and nor did the system where farmers were paid not to grow things, which is something of a price control, right? And those were all sort of eventual reactions to these problems, which already existed at the time. But to go through the story, the idea is in the original story, Dorothy has silver shoes instead of ruby slippers, and they were changed to ruby because it's a color movie and the red looked better in color. But she has silver shoes. So she walks down the yellow brick road, the gold standard, right, ultimately finds it unsatisfactory and has to click her silver shoes in order to go home. There's the Emerald City, which in the book is not actually emerald, but everybody in the Emerald City upon entering has to wear green tinted glasses, uh, which they what they don't realize is that is what causes them to see the city as emerald. You could see this as something having to do with like the greenback and paper money. And, you know, do you value paper money? Does it have intrinsic value? That kind of thing. And then there's this idea that the Wicked Witch of the West is the railroads. The Wicked Witch of the East is Wall Street. The Scarecrow is agricultural laborers. The Tin Man is, you know, lumberjacks or industrial laborers. The Lion is supposedly William Jennings Bryant. All these people who are all involved in uh, populism in the late uh, 1800s. And that Dorothy drops a house on the Wicked Witch of the East, which is the suggestion that rural America needs to drop a house on Wall Street, that kind of thing. Main Street and Wall Street meeting in an entirely different geographical orientation, as it were. Yeah. So uh, so let me, let, me, uh, let me just repeat something. The story of the wonderful Wizard of Oz was written solely to please children of today. <laughs> it aspires to being a modernized fairy tale in which the wonderment and joy are retained and the heartaches and nightmares are left out so uh so, yeah now this is a very widespread theory about the wizard of oz i've certainly been enthusiastic about it myself at times having read the book i don't see it what i do see is i see a lot of fixation on work and craft and the sort of work and craft that People in middle America, notably South Dakota, right, where L. Frank Baum lived for a time, are engaged in. And everything good that happens is as a result of somebody knowing how to use some sort of implement or tool, right? Like when Dorothy melts the Wicked Witch, it's with the wash basin that she's been using to clean things in, in the witch's mansion. Sure. So, or the um, – oh, what are the names of the – what are the names of the, the Wicked Witch of the West's uh, – The Winkies? The Winkies, yeah. yeah. They're great tinsmiths, right? And they repair yeah. uh, they repair the Tin Man or the – you know, um, or even in, in the Emerald City, like there's some – they're good seamstresses or something like that, right? Like uh, the fine – they're luxury goods, but they're sort of fine uh, uh, fine dresses and things like this. Or like when they escape in the balloon, that Dorothy like sews the balloon. She knows how to, to um, you know, for a, for a child, she's pretty industrious. She knows how to sew a hot sew a hot air balloon. Like the China, the China people are also uh, pretty are also pretty interesting. The sort of delicate, uh, the delicate porcelain people, or the special snowflakes, as I like to call them, um, <laughs> who can but be you, broken yeah. very easily. And even them, the, the Dorothy wants to take the China princess home with her, and the princess begs not to because she wants to retain retain the power of movement, right. and doesn't want to be kept on a shelf. Yeah, and that's that seems to me to be keyed into. So, so here's the thing: if L. Frank Baum doesn't think the Wizard of Oz is about anything, then the Wizard of Oz is about something from his subconscious rather than his conscious mind. <laughs> sure, is, is something to posit. And so maybe all this populism stuff is in his subconscious mind. Maybe, 
But I don't see it after having read the book as being the ostensible allegorical purpose of the book. Uh, another sign of that is in the movie, when the Wizard of Oz gives the gifts back to the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Lion and, and restores them in what they have, the the Wizard of Oz uh, makes a couple of pronouncements that feel a little bit Ambrose Bierce-ish in, in terms of you know the late mid-19th century writer of the Devil's Dictionary. In the way they, they dismiss highfalutin people and experts and arrogant people and people from the coastal elites is what we would call them today. That, you know, the scarecrow, you know, you don't have, you're not any smarter than a lot of people who think that they're very smart, but those people have diplomas and you don't, so I'll give you a diploma. And, and the lion's like, well, you know, lion, you're no braver or more scared than a lot of people who call themselves brave, but you know what they have that you don't is a medal. And it's this sort of folksy repudiation of the fancy ways in which people gird themselves up with validation in modern society. That's entirely absent from the book. Right. Where the wizard is said is sort of like, oh, well, Scarecrow, the reason that you don't know a lot of things is that you're one year old and you need to learn things. And so, but I'll I'll make you a brain out of pins just to make you feel better. Well, there's it, a con, it, there's like a con job that's perpetrated on all all three of the, you know, of the people by the, either the what, the, the wealthy industrialist of Chicago, depending on what you think the Emerald City is right, like whether it's Washington D.C. or Chicago, uh, the 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 idea of like America having a central metropolis and you know surrounded by provinces on all sides is uh, is pretty interesting. But the the um, you know I don't know I guess a Midwesterner would would think that right. But the the uh, uh, the sort of central metropolis is like it's not you know the, here's a here's another counterexample that I think is an interesting interesting thing to keep in our head as we're as we're as you read the Wizard of Oz. Uh, it's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Right. right, which is a similar kind of adventure story starring a young girl. Uh, it similarly mm, uh, uh, deflates the powerful to to a certain extent. Like there are a couple of things in in the novel, like uh, you know the the scarecrow walked off thinking. Uh, you know the scarecrow said, "I am the only stuffed ruler in all of the world," and as far as he knew, he was right. Yeah. Like, and yeah. that that's uh, you know there, the, but that's less frequent. Then you might think, given like the the trenchant social commentary of Alice's adventures, um, Alice's adventures in Wonderland, uh, and especially uh, especially I think the second there was a second book, wasn't there? I, I forget they're, 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 those stories have an interesting. Oh yeah, there's a lot of other books. I mean, we aren't even addressing the other what like fourteen. Yeah, Oz, books. well, sure. This one was so popular that it had to be. Uh, uh, you know, so like uh, Alice was published as Alice's Adventures Underground in a handwritten manuscript presented by, um, and but the you know so so my point is like all of these there's there's a lot of these but like with with the kind of the satire of Queen Victoria and the Queen of Hearts and the the idea of sort of still dealing with a, a monarch that has absolute power over life and death and the sort of off with your head and the sort of limits on the 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 relative drabness of. Um, um, of uh, of Wizard of Oz, uh, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, I should say, the title of the book is that um, the uh, it's it's the drabness of a democracy, right? Like it's it's a drabness of of things where things have to proceed through negotiation and argumentation and and kind of a political process rather than uh, uh, you know rather than um, 
just by someone someone making a decision and like the the kind of the negotiation among the negotiation among the band of travelers uh, or uh, between i should say the the band of travelers and the people that they meet in each of the different sections of oz each of which has a a different um set of customs and norms and and you know each of which sort of provides a different sort of uh uh help or hindrance along the way is is a little more uh you know i don't know is is a little more fragmented and a little more reflects the kind of geographic scope and the the the, the cultural variations of america rather than you know rather than a uh rather than a more pointed the more pointed satire of of alice um which ref, which you know uh is targeted at a different culture i guess mm, yeah and oh and so alice in wonderland is two books Right, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Through the Looking Glass is the second one that I was thinking of, yeah. And it's interesting because when we consider the core story of Alice that's made it into the children's movies, that incorporates events from both Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Whereas with The Wizard of Oz, it's almost entirely taken from the first book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Although for things like Return to Oz and other stuff, I'm sure they pick some other things. But it's, it's pretty confined to the main story of that one book and even not that entire story of that one book. Um, and then it's interesting thing they only came out 35 years apart that those those two books are pretty close to each other the wizard of oz and alice in wonderland uh, certainly there isn't much in the latter or in one that w- couldn't be in the other in terms of technology i suppose yeah it's not i mean it's interesting for 1900 there's no there's no real factory there's no industry right like there's yeah. it's it's all what today we would call sort of bespoke you know yeah. <laughs> artisanal artisanal it's it's all artisanal handmade uh handmade goods but it's you know it's not like okay we're here we are in kansas you know let's uh let's take our crops to the grain elevator you know there's a sense of like uh there's a sense that they are kind of directly directly producing things and this is carried out in oz in the kind of the allegorical mode where uh, there's no like, I, I don't know, sewing machines or things like this, right? Like things, things are done not with um, power tools or even like a, a, like a, a crank power, a foot pedal power drill or something like that. They're done with tin snips and, and shovels and an ax, you know, that, uh, that, I don't know, represent what, like the, the, that represent a kind of vision and idealized vision of, of pre-industrial economic activity, I guess. That makes a lot of sense. And also because Dorothy is so poor. It's also interesting to think that maybe L. Frank Baum is basing it more on his own years in South Dakota, which precede 1900 by a considerable margin, not on the uh the the contemporary culture at the time that the story was written sure so yeah this is like a, a period piece everyone yeah every everyone does that right a little bit like with oh children's books you go to your own childhood right like you don't necessarily look at the contemporary trends uh you sort of think of your own childhood as the way the way it ought to be another writer doing the same thing around about the same time was sigmund freud right? <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, who who posited an ideal model of child development 
development based largely on his uh, bourgeois Viennese upbringing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as though that was the most healthy and natural way to do it. Um, the uh, what I mean, do you, what do you think? Just in terms of like, a, a lot of the way this is framed, or at least the way the movie is framed, is a, is as a coming of age story. Um, do you feel like that's in the book at all? Dorothy coming of age. Yeah. Or like that, or being changed by the journey in, in some particular way. I don't know. I had a, I had a ninth grade, uh, I had a ninth grade English teacher who assigned us this book and sort of pointed, pointed out that when, when she gets to Glinda and the color red, uh, is associated with, uh, with maturity and sort of Glinda sitting on the Ruby throne as a model of mature womanhood. Uh, and that Dorothy is kind of passed into some sort of, you know, has, sort of attained something some new some new status um even though she hasn't really aged over the course even though she hasn't really aged over the course of the story but the 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 like the well there are sort of two stated morals of the movie one is there's no place like home uh and that no matter how far you travel you still sort of yearn in your heart um for uh you still yearn in your heart for the um the place you grew up, which is false. And, the, <laughs> and, and also not demonstrated in the movie at all. <laughs> guys, uh, it's like Oz is better than Kansas. It's got colors and stuff. It's got, you know, I don't know, fantastical creatures and, and whatnot. Um, and, and then the other one is like, well, the power was in you all along, but you had to realize you had it. Right. And that like, you kind of have to, you know, it's not just the destination it's the journey um which makes sense for a sort of coming of age movie right like it it makes sense for uh you know in in a lot of situations in life you know when you can like stand up to a bully or you can like advocate for yourself or you can you find that you have some sort of independence and agency that you didn't have before there's nothing preventing you from doing it before but you couldn't do it before because you hadn't you know walked the road walked that that yellow brick road of life and that this is um you know that that this is sort of the the lesson of this is the lesson of uh the wizard of oz but it doesn't i i mean that doesn't track either for me because it's not she's not really changed by it like you know she's sort of friendly and likes kansas at the beginning she's friends she's friendly and likes kansas at the end uh that it's not like there's a great sort of profound change in her character uh in the film i'm talking about from from the beginning to the end and i guess that i was i was uh um, you know, I, I, I don't know. It was, it was a question slightly in bad faith because I think there's no aspect of, uh, like this in, in the novel, right? Like Dorothy doesn't learn any lessons. It's not like there's something that she knows at the end that she didn't know, uh, that she didn't know before going, going into the novel, or do you see it differently? No, I agree. I, I was interested in the question partially because I, sussing it out between the film and the book, it's it's very different. In to put aside the film for a moment, in the book, I don't. None of the characters' subjective experience is important. None of the things that the characters feel or want are important. What is described, or at least they're not described. They're not. They're not part of the text. They're, what's described is the third person view of what is happening. And if people learn things or if things happen to them, it's because somebody else has said it or somebody else has given them something. We don't really get to see them experience uh, their own insights. 
uh, or even it's, it's part of how all the dialogue feels like it's all the same person, which we talked about a little bit before. So when Dorothy returns home, when Dorothy visits Glenda at the end of the book, you know, she gets to the South. You know, there's the Wicked Witch, the North, Good Witch of the South is Glenda in the book. And there's the thing where, you know, so in the books, there's the the flying monkeys are not the exclusive minions of the Wicked Witch of the West. There's something of a genie. They've been in prison. They've been enslaved to this crown that they have to grant three wishes or three requests. So they have to be they can be summoned three times by whoever has this golden cap. Uh, and over the course of that person's life, they have to respond to three summons to do various things. And because air forces are overpowered in general relative to ground forces, the flying monkeys are relatively capable, despite a general lack of supernatural ability of any meaningful sort. Right. They fly in and they cause a ruckus. So they lift people and carry them away and then they fly out. But Dorothy has the hat and she gives the golden cap to the good witch who then orders the monkeys to do three things, right, which is take the scarecrow back, take the lion back, take the tin man back, the tin woodsman back. And then she gives the cap back to the head of the flying monkeys so that they can be free of their servitude in kind of a pre Aladdin move. And although because I don't know if Aladdin in the original Arabian Nights story does this like he does in the movie where he wishes for the genie's freedom. That feels like a very modern choice. But I feel like we're supposed to believe or I feel like this urge that's associated with this voice that's the third person narrator of the stories that is presumably associated with this character of L. Frank Baum that's present over everything that that it wants us to think that this experience was instructive for Dorothy. It wants us to think that Dorothy has seen how Glenda does things and admires it. Or at least that because she's been exposed to it, she's supposed to learn from it. But we don't get anything from Dorothy to indicate that Dorothy has registered any of it or that it matters to Dorothy. And when Dorothy goes home, she's just like, oh, I'm so glad to be home. It's reasonable because Dorothy in the books in Oz has been in constant mortal peril from a variety of sources that are very scary. And uh, and of course, it's good to be home because at least she knows where she's going to sleep tonight, which is very different from the movie where there's the whole fantasy element. It is not present in the book, the meta fantasy. Uh, so, yeah, so I would say that Dorothy in the books, it's a coming of age story from the perspective of a parent who is pat- patting themselves on the back for having done a good job without actually having talked to the kid about what their experience is like. Right. It's like, hey, get out there, walk it off, you know, hit a few balls. And it's, and you like walk away like I was I was a good dad. I did a good job. <laughs> that kid's going to be raised right. Right. Uh, and not a coming of age story that shows the character accepting some sort of social model or social norm or way of living and moving into adulthood and realizing some sort of capability. Yeah, or coming or coming to kind of understand themselves in some sort of more profound way that will allow yeah. them to kind of uh, maneuver in the world in, in a, you know, in, in a better way than they have um, up to this point. I mean, the, the, the whole issue of, of powers is very interesting, right? Like the idea that, that Dorothy must be a sorceress and she's accorded a, go- a good deal of respect uh, because of this on account of she killed the, the Wicked Witch of the East. Um, and when they uh, when she goes to the wizard and asks him uh, to take her back to Kansas, he says, well, why? Sh- why should I do this? Why? You know, why should I do this for you? Which which seems out of step with a lot of the kind of the freely given hospitality, the like a lot of the a lot of the Munchkin families would get very good hobo chalk marks on their sidewalks outside their door, uh, you know, because you can get a you can get a war- <laughs> a warm meal and a good night's sleep. Um 
And the but uh, uh, with Dorothy challenged like this by the wizards who says, you know, um, why, why should I do this to you? She says, because you are strong and I am weak because you are a great wizard and I am only a little girl. And that's a, you know, this is an interesting, this is an interesting model of society, right? Like this is, this is a, a sort of authentically a child's view of the world. Like you can't do things for yourself. And so people have to do things for you or else things won't be done for you, you know? Um, and that like you, you, the, 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 your entire work is kind of in the asking. And by the way, this is after she's done the um, oh no! This is not. This is before the Wicked Witch of the, the West. This is after the Wicked Witch of the East. Um, that that uh, this is the first meeting that she has with the wizard. The the um, you know the idea that like you 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 uh, Dorothy is Dorothy Dorothy is basically saying uh, you know from each according to his ability. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and that's that's true. Although the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion all also ask the wizard for things and they don't invoke weakness. They just basically say, Well, you you're the wizard, you can do powerful things and I want this thing and you should do it for me. It's also no no one else can help me is the other yeah, like no I'm I'm out of options is that's the, a good point. Is the other is the other kind of leg that that argument stands on. Yeah. And and that almost casts the wizard. Well, it does. It casts the wizard as the person with agency, which is ironic because the wizard has no powers uh, to consider it against the movie. I'm still a little bit hung up on this idea of coming of age and what happens to Dorothy in the movie. So well, I'm thinking about the scene where and you've talked you talked a little bit about how in the very beginning of the movie, the the Kansas is really well constructed and there's a lot that's going on in Kansas and uh, it has a lot of different cool thematic elements and compositional elements. The scene where Dorothy walks on the fence yeah. and falls into the pigsty yeah. and the farmhand who will be in her dream, the cowardly lion, leaps the pigsty fence, lifts her up and carries her out of the pigsty is interesting to consider in this context because – well, relative to the books, in this situation, Dorothy is in a lot of danger. The pigs, um, we, I think as a kid watching this, I didn't think that because I didn't know anything about pigs. And I know pigs mostly from movies in which they talk. And pigs in, and pigs in movies in which they talk don't eat children's faces, right? Uh, not that real pigs are necessarily go about wanting to do that sort of thing. But it's very dangerous to be in a pigsty with a bunch of pigs. Sure. Especially like, uh, you know, they're very ravenous. They eat a lot of stuff. I, they could trample you or bite you. I'm not saying they're going to sit upon you like a pack yeah, of Yeah, no, wolves, no, they're, they're, like, not, they're not malicious. But, but things happen when animals are in groups especially. Yeah. Exactly. So, which we've all learned if we went to high school. Uh, <laughs> animal, never mind. It's, a, it's a, some sort of like a Jersey stomp joke about kids meeting at a bus station and regretting the things they do afterwards. But, um, but when you consider how Dorothy might think about the farmhand who rescued her, there were a lot of things that she might potentially think about him, uh, not knowing, not like if we wash away the idea of what actually happens in the story. We could go by the attitude that Dorothy has in the books, which is that, oh, the moral of the story is that she couldn't help herself because she's too small. So somebody else came and helped her. And that's just the way that it should be. And that's a proper way to organize society. You could also consider that, oh, maybe Dorothy is going to have some sort of heteronormative reaction to this, where the man who saves her has this sort of manly quality and she has a a female quality. Uh, That's not what happens (laughs) at all. (laughs) If you remember the part where the lion gets a perm and gets a bow put on his head, (laughs) Uh, which is 
is that what gets considered is that the person who is capable of doing this thing, it, who exists in a black and white world, has some sort of inner life or some sort of spiritual analog, some sort of Jungian existence in the collective, sort of Jungian shadow in the collective subconscious, where instead of being, it makes me think of Yoda talking to uh, Luke, saying, saying, you know, Ooh, luminous beings are we, not this dull matter or whatever, right? Where he's saying that that living things uh, have this brightness in the force that is that is more impressive than what you see when you look at them in real life with your eyes. And that that part of The Wizard of Oz, the movie, is Dorothy looking at the people around her. And it's not that she's terribly bored. She's a little bit frustrated. She's she's like a tiny bit disenchanted. And she she doesn't like the way that she's been treated. But she has this revelation. And it's partially about understanding herself, I guess, more than everybody else, which is that she has dreams of something that's bigger and more beautiful than what she has and she doesn't understand that everybody else also kind of has that side of themselves. That everybody else also has that that the somewhere over the rainbow might in fact be something within you rather than something external to yourself. Yeah. And and, and that maybe she now the movie doesn't actually go so far as to outright say this, but showing you the farmhand rescuing her, turning that farmhand into the cowardly lion, and and showing that farmhand kind of fantasizing and parading around as this sort of grand maned you know you know shiny glossy sort of beast and then coming back and seeing him and being like you were there you were there when i was in in my dream and you were this thing you were different than you are now but you were the same it it draws this idea that there's something about the characters in oz that is essentially the same as the characters in kansas that you're seeing some aspect of them uh, and, and the movie doesn't come entirely up to the point of reconciling them or explaining them but that's an arc to me that's interesting and it's not really coming of age Really, it's it's uh, and it's not quite the sort of Pleasantville idea of, oh, well, real life is black and white and we all need to understand that we should be in color. It's not quite that either, because it doesn't really repudiate Kansas entirely. It does bring you back there. I mean, it, no, it says, but I mean, one, one so uh, sort of one movement of childhood to adulthood is is the realization that they um, there are other people and they have legitimate claims. They can make legitimate claims on you or legitimate claims on like the resources of society. You know, it's not all for you. It's not all yours for the taking. Um, and that like I, that's maybe akin to what you're talking about, right? Because like other people dream. Uh, other people dream as well. And like the, the, the farmhands who are sort of, um, the farmhands are like uh, in the black and white section. They're like a Commedia dell'arte clown troupe a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, they're they're as it's funny as fantastical animals and and magical creatures, right? Like they are more uh, they're more fleshed out. And the idea, you know, yeah, that the idea that sort of every person contains some aspect of the fantastical, or uh, you know what I mean, the the, the capacity for uh, you know sublime yearning or something. Something along those lines, right? Is a, a definitely a lesson to be learned um, along the way, and is is a kind of coming of age because it does mark a, a progression from childhood to adulthood. Yeah, no, totally. That makes a lot of sense too. I yeah. get it. Awesome. Oh man! Oh, man. And I, although <laughs> you also you did point out the actual stated moral of the movie, which people can quote entire speeches from the movie The Wizard of Oz, entire songs. But I've been asking people up and down this whole week, 
can you actually tell me what the stated moral at the end of the Wizard of Oz is? And nobody remembers it because it makes no sense and is to- like probably the worst crafted line in the entire uh, in the entire movie. All right, close this <laughs> close this out by saying it to us. Oh uh, man, it's uh, <laughs> uh, it's something like when I seek my heart's desire, right? In fact, let me see if I can get the exact the exact quote. Yeah, let's ask. Quote. Yeah, ask ask the oracle if you can, because it's uh, it is definitely like uh, he didn't have to look any farther than. But it's 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 better when it's better when it comes out of Dorothy's mouth. Yeah. So it's uh, if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard, because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. No, just just on the level of parsing, <laughs> just on the level of parsing the the meaning of that, you know. Yes. Well, to parse, so we should parse it because the syllogism has some problems. Yes. No, that's so, what I'm saying. Just at the level of argumentation, right? Yeah. Like, so, so first of all, if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, the whole thing is conditional. The whole thing is conditional on whether Dorothy ever decides to go seeking something that she wants. Why would she not? <laughs> and she come around to this idea of like, well, maybe I just will never ever go after anything yeah, I want. Exactly. Ever again. Should I should I tire? Should I ever tire for reasons I cannot now fathom uh, of the relentless drudgery that is sure to be my life? <laughs> if that ever happens, in the unlikely event that that ever happens, so, <laughs> there's there's this assumption. Fasten, fasten your own backyard first before helping others. Well, so so the idea is, and I, I've described this to people as the ontological proof of small town america (laughs) which is which is that if you desire happiness then you must have experienced small town america because there because there can be nothing that has created true happiness to the degree of small town america and thus if you do not know small town america you it follows that you do not know happiness right um it's the only way that you could possibly be content as a human being is if you've lived in uh, john mellencamp's hometown you know drinking at the soda shop or whatever it is that people do. Uh, but yeah, there's this idea that if it isn't there, it never really lost it to be with. So the problem is that if she goes looking for her heart's desire, it's assumed it's because she had it and she lost it. That's a pretty big assumption to make when people go looking for things, especially young people. It's like, how do you know? I mean, adulthood isn't a thing that you have and you lose. It's a thing that you find that you didn't have. Yeah, That's sure. Or like, you know, career aspirations, a partner, <laughs> the, the you know. A I Nintendo know. Switch, which I still can't find <laughs> anywhere in, in Rhode Island, eastern Massachusetts, or southern New Hampshire. Oh. <laughs> no, it's all right. I went Switch hunting today. I will be the last Switch hunter. You just wait. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't given up. I haven't given up. But yeah, so this idea is that. I think well, that's a, that is a Lewis Carroll poem, isn't it? The Hunting of the Switch. I believe, I believe so. There's something about the 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 snipper clips and the snicker snacks, yeah, and <laughs> and the breath of the wild, um, and the joy cons with the with the jiggly googlies or something. <laughs> <laughs> but some of those are actual Nintendo Switch words, and some of them aren't. I'll leave it to you, re- dear reader, to make the distinction between them. Uh, but yeah, this idea that well, if I if I go looking for my heart's desire, it must be because I have lost something. That must be the only reason that I go looking for it. Uh, although that isn't that's actually also a bit of a logical leap uh, because there's no real antecedent given for what would be the decision maker for why you would go looking for your heart's desire or not. Yep. But this is idea that that the heart's desire as a thing has to be something that is already possessed. It has to be. And and so if it isn't there, 
That, and since you never, if you never leave your, it's sort of like really what she's describing is finding your keys, right? <laughs> Which is, if I ever go looking for my keys to drive my car, I'm not going to go farther from my house because if my keys aren't in my house, then I, well, that means, um, yeah, exactly. Because if your I keys, can't have left my house because I can't have if the keys never got into that, my car. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If the keys went in my car and went somewhere else, I would be where my keys are rather than where I am. Right. Right. But instead, I am here. <laughs> and so maybe I took my keys and I left. I took my car keys and I went somewhere very far away by walking and then dropped them and then walked back. But that's not the situation that Dorothy is describing because she's from Kansas and you can't go anywhere in Kansas on foot. You have to drive. So that's 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 what it is. So Dorothy describes finding her keys at the end of the wizard of oz and nobody remembers that part because it makes no sense. Dorothy, I have a que- Dorothy, I have a question. Does your life have a purpose? <laughs> I don't know, Matthew. I've looked everywhere for it. I can't find it. <laughs> yeah, beyond the rainbow, why oh why can't I? All right. Uh thank you Pete for talking about the wizard of oz. This was a lot of fun and thanks uh, very much to everyone who listened. I will be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until then, click your heels three times and visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably Probably doesn't deserve. It probably doesn't deserve. It probably doesn't deserve. It probably doesn't deserve. Hi, Matthew. Welcome back. Oh, and you were there, Harvey. And and as in any act of analysis, I was there, and I was there, and I was there, and I was there, and all criticism is autobiography. That's what I learned in the land of Oz.